What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast, brought to you by discipleship.org. This is your host, Dave Stovall, and today we are continuing down Renew.org's track sessions from the most recent forum we just had. We've got Curtis Sargent and Paul Hugobart today. Curtis was a disciple-making movement leader in South China, and now he's seeking to catalyze movements here in the United States like that. Paul interviews Curtis about the need to rediscover genuine urgency tied to the mission of God. Some of us here in the States are a little confused about what that is and how to have this genuine sense of urgency as we carry that out. Let's listen in and let Curtis and Paul encourage us and inform us and move us forward in the episode today. Enjoy. All right. Good morning. It's, uh, it is 9, 9 a.m. We'll probably have a few more roll in as we go. As I was joking earlier, my folks that thought they could go to Denny's and still make it here on time, which, uh, which is always, you know, that's, that's a gamble, right? So, um, but I do enjoy a good uh, home run breakfast with the best of them. So, um, you know, welcome this morning. This is, uh, this is one of the tracks put on uh, by Renew, organized by Renew. Um, at Renew, <clears throat> we really care about solid theology, but we care about solid theology because we believe that is kind of what's at the heart of what will fuel disciple making. I think the American church has drifted in its theology to the point where we decided disciple making wasn't really that important. Um, and so uh, at Re- Renew, we care about solid theology, renewing the teachings of Jesus um, through our engagement with Scripture, uh, through being people, as Curtis was talking about yesterday, that really believe that, that the Word of God is where we start. If it's not our starting point, we're in trouble. And so uh, so we want to be about that, and we want to see disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We want to see that be the story of uh, American churches. Really what we hope is that the American church can be at the center of catalyzing movement. Uh, as Curtis and I were talking this morning, uh, some of that, it, there, there are some first signs of that, which is really, really encouraging. Um, and so thank you for joining us today. We're going to talk uh, in a bit about urgency as it is connected to the mission. And so we will get into that topic, as you see, kind of as a, the header and the theme for what we'll be discussing the next hour. But I want to give you a chance to get to know, if you don't already, uh, Curtis Sargent to some degree. Uh, especially, I want you to hear some of his story uh, about how he got connected to movement and becoming a disciple uh, who makes disciples, who makes disciples. And he's got really an incredible story that, that I got to hear a couple of summers ago. Uh, it was very inspiring to me. In fact, there are several things that I do consistently now because of the time I got to spend with Curtis just in that short week. And so, uh, Curtis, if you would, this morning as we begin, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got connected um, into movement and into multiplicative disciple making? Sure. Um, so I grew up, um, in Asia, my parents were missionaries, so um, I lived through my elementary school years in um, Taejon, South Korea, and then middle school and high school in Taichung, Taiwan. And um, I would say that in some senses that was my kind of first step toward the you know kind of the calling that I felt on my life mm. the summer after my freshman year in high school um, I was at an all-night prayer meeting with some friends and felt a really clear call to sort of least reached peoples mm. and then um, you know ultimately that led me to the the unengaged group that we targeted in South China um, on the island that Bobby mentioned yesterday, Hainan Island. 
And um, while there, um, I was really feeling overwhelmed by the the scope or the scale mm. of the need and came to realize fairly quickly that anything that I was familiar with didn't really stand much of a chance of getting the job done. Mm -hmm. And um, so came to the conclusion that making disciples who make disciples and planting churches that plant churches was really the only way I could conceive of could you could you describe real quickly when you say what you were familiar with, just so that we have that we're all on the same page? I, I bet we have a good idea, but yeah, just so you could clarify that familiar uh, approaches to church and to missions, really, mm -hmm. um, you know, that are essentially built on additive growth, yes. and um, so then from that point really began focusing specifically on multiplying disciples. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of what I've been focused on ever since. Yeah. So could you give us a uh, real quick, just so that, again, that everybody understands, I don't want to make assumptions here. Um, when we're talking about a difference between additive growth and multiplicative growth, could you give us a snapshot definition of each? Yeah, so additive growth approaches um, tend to be um, ones that are centered around um, like well-trained professionals, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the goal usually is to grow groups. Um, multiplicative approaches are tend to be built around uh, equipping every disciple mm -hmm. to be reproducing so it's not centered on well-trained professionals, but, you know, in a sense, lay people, volunteers, whatever, that are ordinary people, but equipped to make other disciples. And um, so it's characterized by pouring deeply into a few. If somebody's, you know, doing this as a, a non-professional, they don't have the time or bandwidth usually to be working with a large number of people, mm -hmm. but they do have the capacity to pour deeply into a few people. But if that happens in such a way that those also pour into a few deeply mm -hmm. and so on, then you end up seeing this uh, multiplication effect. Yeah, yeah, I heard this described kind of the, the difference uh, recently is that kind of the additive method um, could often be described as low impact, low impact, high visibility. So where there's high visibility of a few people, the professionals, um, maybe it's on stage and it's kind of a, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. And that's all you can do in that space for a half hour, 20 minutes. So high visibility, oftentimes low impact as opposed to a low visibility, but high impact. So a lot of deep behind the scenes, real life investment into people who then turn around and make disciples. So you're talking about everyday, what we call everyday ordinary disciples becoming reproducing disciple makers or multiplicative disciple makers with generational disciple making. Um, 
could you give us, and we, we've used that term before, but, but give us kind of an understanding of what we're talking about when we say generational disciple making as well, because I think that's something we don't quite yet grasp well here in North America. Um, maybe I could yeah, draw yeah, something yeah. on my whiteboard. Absolutely. I'm yeah. dangerous if I get a whiteboard done. Okay, for those of you listening on the podcast, I'll try to describe what Kurt, Curtis is doing. <laughs> right. so. so one of the things we try to equip every disciple in is having a, a practical working ability in implementing the training cycle, which we characterize as model, assist, watch, and leave. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, let's say that's the first generation. So the first generation is modeling for the second generation, right? But then the second generation models for the third generation, you know? And um, so that continues. And so you have, you know, this person will have a long impact on the second generation person. And then this second generation has a long impact on the third generation person. But each of these is reproducing. So if you've ever seen the charts of like doubling, you know, if you double every, you know, every so often. So like, let's say um, if you um, started with one disciple and you doubled every 10 months over a period of 10 years, then at the end of that 10 years, you'd have 64 disciples. If you started with one disciple and reproduced every 12 months, you'd have over a thousand, thousand twenty-four, and so on. And that increases remarkably quickly. So, yep. And all these would be multiplicative. Yeah. We're just talking about the rate at which yeah. we're multiplying at this so point. So if they reproduce every 18 yeah. months, 64, 12, 1,000, 9, over 8,000. Every six months, you end up with a million in 10 years. And if every four months, a billion in 10 years. Yeah. And the thing, the other key thing, if, if you're wanting to pursue, you know, movements that grow rapidly, the investment for one person may be years long, mm-hmm. but you don't wait till they finish before, they, before reproduce. they reproduce. You just teach them the first step, have them reproduce that. And they're immediately doing that with someone else. So there's... You know, having a four-month reproduction is plausible, mm-hmm. you know, because they don't have to be, they don't have to know everything or be doing everything. They just have to be knowing and doing one thing, then they can immediately reproduce that. Mm-hmm. And that ongoing, you know, process can take as long as it needs to till people mature. And so that is the impact mm-hmm. you know if you if you look at multiplicative methods yeah so you probably can see why we're talking with curtis about this idea of urgency i think um probably the mo- this is probably the, the, the most clear explanation i've seen of why we should be urgent and how we can think through urgency um, again there's a longevity from one disciple to the next but multiplication starts to happen fairly quickly. And so if you're seeing multiplication happen at four months, 
you could end up with one billion disciples made if that is the rate, and that's consistent, of course. Uh, you could see one billion disciples made in 10 years. If you're only seeing multiplication happening every eight month, eight months or 18 months, you'd see 64 disciples made. And so huge numbers when you start to think in that very multiplicative way. One, one thing that I've heard several guys say connected with movement uh, about this is that they had this moment, and I think, I think you've talked about having that moment, you were kind of alluding to that just a minute ago, where you look at the scope of the mission as it relates to the area that God has called you to, whether you know, be in your case kind of South, South China, right, um, or Josh Howard in India, or other Shadanke looking at those northern tribes in Sierra Leone, and seeing how many people they were, and thinking about traditional methods, and then trying to think through how long would it take us to reach these people with traditional methods? And the answer is we can never do it, especially if the goal becomes we need to reach all of these people within our lifetimes. That can't happen by addition. doesn't matter how big your stage is. It's just not going to work. And it's also really not God's plan as well. God wanted each individual disciple to go be able to make other disciples who made other disciples. That was the plan from the beginning. And so this really gives you an idea. And so I appreciate the visual here um, of what it looks like to be urgent about disciple making and invest in other disciples who start to make disciples. And so you can see that really, if we are urgent, the only way we can express that urgency, I think would be fair to say, is through embracing multiplicative principles. Is that, or the best way? It's the best way I know of. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So, um, Let's, let's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we can definitely do follow-ups as well. Yeah. M-A-W-L stands for what again? Model, assist, watch, and lead. So just real quick, the modeling is just what it sounds like. That can happen almost instantaneously for almost any tool, skill, or concept. The assist is when the mentee, you know, the learner actually is doing it, but they have no skill yet. And so it takes definite, you know, supervision by the mentor. But that is usually pretty short as well. And that is what determines the reproductive rate. Because as soon as they start to transition into this watch phase, they are doing it on their own and they are, they're expected to be reproducing. But this is a much longer phase if it's a very mm -hmm. complex, um, cluster of tools or concepts or even a single you know thing could may take lots of watching so just to really give a quick illustration I sort of have this little package of disciple making tools and skills and concepts that I like to start with when making disciples and the model and assist my goal is to complete the model and assist for all of those in three months. But here I'm willing to watch for three years, five years, 10 years, however long it takes till I feel like they've fully mastered that whole package. And then I can leave with regard to that. Doesn't mean I break relationship, but they're completely peers and you know, co-laborers in every sense. So I don't know if that helps. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So model assist watch leave is similar to what you may have heard, you know, kind of the I do yep. you watch. We talk about it. Then we do it together. And then we talk about it. Then you do it. I watch. We talk about it. And then that's where you're kind of 
setting somebody free. Um, so th this is super helpful stuff as we think about how we engage and how we how quickly we can actually move into seeing reproduction. And, and I think there is a belief oftentimes in the North American church, even as we're starting to embrace disciple making, that we need to bring someone all the way through to spiritual maturity before we say, now you go and do this. Or what Curtis is advocating for is a much quicker release to go and do while we're still helping somebody navigate towards spiritual maturity, which was a point that I did not catch uh, right away as we were going. In fact, I had some tension uh, the first time I spent a little bit of time with Curtis about this because I, I felt like, no, we need to move people through maturity. What happens if we don't move them through maturity? What are they going to go do? But no, there's still uh, a process of guiding, uh, shaping, even assisting through the process. I mean, you know, the assisting is, a, you know, that's the second letter. So you model and you assist and you watch. And I'm sure there's still leadership training going on, development all through that process as people are learning to do what you what they've been seeing you do. So yeah, yeah. Would you take a second to explain a little bit more of the assist part of like, when, are you doing it like with them? Like then it becomes instead of a group of two, like a group of three or four? Or is it like just a, a, ch a check in? Yeah. Okay, let me repeat the question real quick for the podcast. So, so what's being asked is if Curtis could spend a little bit more time detailing what happens in the assist phase. So we're talking about modeling, that's the watching. Now the assisting, doing it together. So go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, it depends on the skill or the tool or the concept. So some some things you can just be with them. They they do it the first first time. You're just making sure it's okay, and then that's it. They're done. But if it's something that's more complicated or difficult, then you know it, there may be multiple interventions. It's like a parent teaching a child to ride a bicycle. The child's on the seat of the bicycle, but the parent's holding on, right? And if you let go, they're falling. So put them back up, you know, do it again. That is the assist phase. So I don't know if that helps. Could we, could we use a specific example, potentially, of prayer walking? And give us, you know, how would you do, what would it look like in the model phase, and what would it look like as you got to assist? Is everybody familiar with the concept of prayer walking? Um, if not, give us just a quick snapshot of what you're doing when you're prayer walking, and that will help understand the, the modeling piece, and then the, we can talk about assist. The super brief thing is walking around usually with a, a partner and praying as the Lord leads for the community or area where you are walking around. Um, it includes, you know, often interacting with people and, you know, things like that, but Generally, that's it. So in prayer walking, modeling it, maybe you would go with the person and you would just prayer walk and you would be doing a lot of the praying. And, you know, especially maybe the interactions with people, mm -hmm. you would be modeling what that can look like, you know. And then the assist phase, you're going out and prayer walking and, you know, maybe more spending more balanced time and the amount of time that you're, you're praying and letting them take the lead on a couple of conversations. And then if they're missing a key point, maybe you step in, you know, kind of and steer it back or whatever, or after the, the interaction, maybe you make a couple of coaching points on what they could do better and so on. And that may happen for one or two prayer walks together. And then at the watch phase, you would sort of let them take the lead and probably would only, you know, debrief afterward, making some observations or whatever, you know. 
and then once you feel like they've mastered you know all the aspects and they can pass it on to someone else then you're ready to leave so so the L stands for lead with a leave. D at the end? L-E-A-V-E. -E. Okay. Yeah, the L, L stands for lead. Yes, in the back. Yeah, you said you have a handful, a pretty good package of things that you know you want to pass on when you decide. Would you just list off some of the things in that package? Yeah, so I mean, there's about 20 in kind of that initial package. So it includes things like um, how to share the gospel, how to share your testimony, um, you know, how to facilitate um, what we call a three-thirds group, or it's like a DBS, if you're familiar with that. Um, concepts like what I call duckling discipleship, or the spiritual economy, um, prayer walking, use, use of the prayer wheel, um, and so on. So there's like 20 things that are tools, skills, or concepts that I think are core to a full understanding of how a person multiplies disciples in simple churches. And one of them is the, the training cycle itself, which is always the last one somebody masters. Mm -hmm. really. Do you have that, that packet available anywhere? Mm -hmm. there's, there's, so, um, there's good online training, really good online training that, that maybe Curtis, you could talk about a little bit. And Curtis also does actual on-site trainings as well, which is what I got to participate in that. Would you just share just a quick yeah. minute or two um, about that? Can we start with the web address? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Real easy. That's it. Zume.training. So Zume is the Greek word for yeast or leaven. So like the kingdom parable of the woman who took a small amount of yeast mixed it, mixed it into a large amount of flour until it was all leavened. So that's what it's named after. Mm -hmm. And um, it's free. You can sign up for a coach if you want to, and which is also free. So yeah. Dot training. Just dot training. Yep. Zoom dot training. And it's available in over forty languages. So if you're working with, you know, immigrant groups or whatever, it can be a helpful tool. Mm. Go ahead. What yeah. are some unique challenges to the North American climate? I, I can see this in China. I can see. Well, what are some unique? Um, I think one challenge is in the U.S. We tend to be pretty far to one end of the scale of um, independence, like how independent individuals are so we're not a communal mm -hmm. society we're an individual society which mitigates against um, mm -hmm. movement in several ways mm -hmm. um, and I think that's significant um, I think our propensity for um, creating a division between the sacred and the secular rather than viewing all of life mm -hmm. as being connected to our spiritual lives. Um, that uh, definitely is a challenge. Sort of our viewpoint on the use of time here is you know, not especially helpful, though um, by any measure with, because of our um, you know, 
material affluence and technological advances, we should have more um, discretionary time than anybody in history. And yet nobody feels like they have enough time to do this or that. Um, And then I would say a perception sort of in our cultural Christianity that um, basically we can hear what the Lord wants and then we decide, do we want to do that or not? Mm-hmm. Right? As opposed to understanding mm-hmm. He is Lord mm-hmm. in, you know, in every sense. Um, I think that definitely mitigates against movement. Yeah. That's maybe the biggest one. So those would be maybe four of the top factors I would cite. I'm going to, I'm going to add one to that, and it's actually going to kind of segue us back into kind of the main, uh, the main thrust of what we're talking about this morning. Um, and I think it's that we don't in the church actually hold anywhere dear this urgency to actually reach lost people as well. You know, I think many churches, we kind of think it's about, it's about coming. I mean, the pinnacle is what we do on Sunday morning. So this is the show. This is the big deal. So come here, experience the show and then go about your life. And the rest of your life is yours. What we do on Sunday here matters the most. And so um, out of that, it's very difficult to develop a a missional urgency. So let me ask you this, Curtis. um, How urgent do you believe the mission of Jesus is right now and why? Wow, that's um, a big question. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one reason it's urgent is because he commanded it. Yeah. Right. Um, And his desire is clearly Mm. that direction. And Peter, we're told he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul writes that he desires all men to be saved. Um, You know, I, I believe the Great Commission is given to all this, you know, all his followers, not just the 11. Um. And one evidence I would give for that is um, the promise is coextensive with the command, right? Mm -hmm. If we believe his promise, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age, is to all of us, then the command Mm -hmm. to make disciples is also to all of us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those would, you know, be relevant, I think. Um, <laughs> there's a, a passage in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, that we're all familiar with. It's the rich man and Lazarus. Um, most of my life, um, being focused on least reached peoples, I always viewed that as a, a passage where I'd take people who said, you know, this sounds great, but why didn't you come earlier? What about all my loved ones who have died? I can't bear the thought of being separated from them. And I would take them to that passage and say, I can't give you hope for your loved ones who have died, but the one thing you can do that could bring them some measure of comfort would be for you to avoid the same fate. Because you remember the rich man, when he can't get relief, you know, with... Lazarus dipping water and putting it on his tongue was okay. Then go warn my five brothers, lest they also come to this place of torment. But when I came to the U.S., I started to view that passage differently. 
and more from the perspective of hell has something that the church needs, mm-hmm. and that is a compassion for the lost. Mm-hmm. Because that man burning in hell had wow. a deep concern, a deep compassion yes. for his lost mm-hmm. brothers. And sometimes we can forget, I think, there's, there's um, a sense of clarity <laughs> probably that comes from hell that we can be distracted from or, yeah, forget. And um, so I think when we're thinking clearly, it's natural to have concern. I think also just the in you know recent decades, the um, the demographics of it are pretty striking. Um, if if we graph out world population growth mm-hmm. from the time of Christ till now, mm-hmm. it goes like that. Yeah. So like we hit um, actually we hit one billion. In 1804, we had 2 billion in 1927. We had 3 billion in 1960. Well, last year we hit 8 billion, 2022. So like basically in my lifetime, we've gone from 3 billion to 8 billion people. And I'm not that old, (laughs) right? that means more than one non-Christian per second passes into a Christless eternity. And if we believe that God really desires all men to be saved, that he desires all to come to repentance, then that should bother us a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, that would be a few maybe quick, quick things that pop to mind. Yeah, I think I've I've heard others. I think I think Dean Kai, who you you know, correct, um, talks about looking around at the population of China and saying, "How would we reach all these people in one generation?" Um, which is not a question we often ask. We just kind of think, "Well, we'll just keep kind of going through and do the best we can as we go." And um, there's not this deep, kind of compelling need and urgency to reach everybody in one generation. But what you're showing here is as the population is growing in, in exponential ways, our efforts need to grow in exponential ways. You know, even as we've seen now more than 1% of the world's population, it sounds like approaching 2% of the world's population and disciple making movements. Um, the percentage of people who claim Christianity has actually not increased. Is that is that correct? Except without the contribution of movements. Yes. Then that's been true for Then the population a long of Christians time. would actually go down in relation to the rest of the world's yeah. population. And so <clears throat> without the contribution of movements, what we can see is very clearly the rest of the world's church is fighting a losing battle. Where where is the battle being advanced? Where is winning happening in that sense? It's through the contribution of movements. And so you can see the urgency even for the North American church in that to stop doing or to, to not do only what we're doing at minimum, right? To bring this in as well and to say, how can we maybe ride two rails if that's what we're going to try to do? Or how can we actually catalyze movements here so that we can see, uh, we can see this trend reversed? Go ahead in, in the back. 
Yeah, I got two questions. The first one is like, I guess on that topic, I feel like we need to start asking some different questions. Okay. So what are some of the different questions that we need to be asking as, as church leaders and disciple makers? And then on the heels of that, what are some of the questions, Curtis, that you're wrestling with right now in all this? Wow. Okay, so some different questions that we as church leaders should be asking, and for Curtis specifically, what, what questions are, is he currently wrestling with? Yeah. Um, two just paradigm-related questions um, might be, first, what would it look like if God's will were done on earth as mm -hmm. it is in heaven? That should be our goal. So whatever goal you're currently shooting for, whatever goal I'm currently shooting for, if it's not that, then mm -hmm. it's not sufficient. And what you aim for does make a difference. So I think that would be the first one. A second one, um, which might be particularly relevant for us in North America because of our individualistic bent is coming to realize that we need to work not towards what I can do, but towards what needs to be done mm -hmm. and recognizing that that absolutely requires levels of, um, collaboration and interdependence that are not currently evident in most of our efforts. Mm -hmm. um, he designed his body to, um, to need one another. <laughs> you know, the, the spiritual gifts is an illustration of that. And um, so that might be a couple of um, a couple of questions. Yeah, for me personally, um, wow, that's a great question. Fairly recently, uh, you know, I've been trying to give more thought and consideration to um, how we can more effectively um, utilize. Um, tech advances, mm. you know? So, I mean, historically, like the printing press, mm. massive, right? Yeah. Well, we're getting printing press equivalent <clears throat> tech breakthroughs every few years now. Yeah. And it's a challenge to um, figure out how to steward those well, because obviously, you know, we could use them in ways that wouldn't be so helpful, you know, but I do believe there are ways that we can um, wisely integrate those into what we're doing. And so trying to give a little more thought that direction. So. Yeah, tech, tech advances, would that be considered what some are calling maybe digital discipleship, digital disciple making, it would something include, along those lines? It would include that. <clears throat> yep. So. Curtis? Yeah. Um, knowing what you know about the Legacy Church, if you could make one change to the existing Legacy Church now to impact your vision, 
what would that change be? Um, I don't know. But I, one that just popped into mind, I don't know if it's number one, but um, maybe our conception of the role of leaders, because I think we have tended to outsource our spiritual responsibility as disciples to our paid leaders. And therefore, you know, most people who claim to follow Christ don't tend to really be, you know, serving as the priesthood, <laughs> you know, spiritual priesthood or ambassadors for Christ in the way that I think God intends. So maybe a recognition of the Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 verses, right? He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as shepherds and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry to the building up of the body of Christ till we all attain to unity and maturity to slightly shorten that next verse. But the, the idea being um, leaders' main responsibility or primary function being to equip every one of us to do the work of the ministry and build up the body, not that they do the ministry. And I, I think just that one step could help significantly in, in our um, kingdom labors. So leaders truly tr teaching, training, and equipping, as opposed to just being the doers. Um, or the educators. Or the educators, or whatever, yeah. yes. Yeah, I think um, this, this question about church model is one that certainly is giving many in the legacy church kind of some heartburn, some anxiety. Um, and, and it's part of the reason I think why, why some would believe, I, I, I don't want to characterize your thinking on this necessarily, you know, I can give kind of my, some of my personal ideas, but as far as it relates to the legacy churches, we see it right now. There is enough of a marriage to the model in many places that, that I have wondered whether the best we can do in the legacy church is actually help to catalyze movements. And so the things that we spin off is what we hope will actually become a movement as opposed to maybe in most cases, the legacy church existing at the heart of movement. Um, and, and that's because I think a lot of, whether it be, you know, pastors and church leaders, um, man, there's anxiety as it relates to, you know, a paycheck being tied to that. So how far are those pastors and church leaders going to go to really move toward a place where maybe there's now uh, there's a tension that emerges about where where does the support for my family come from? My job is that going to go away? And certainly, I, I know in meetings we've had with our church staff that question has come up on a number of occasions. Is well, what happens when everybody starts doing this? What 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 does that mean for our jobs? And so that's I think it's there's a real consideration there that sometimes holds things back, but there's. The truth as well, you know, if we think about, uh, if you've seen the bell curve as it relates to innovation adoption, um, you know, you'll have your pioneers. In fact, we began a pioneer group at, at our church to launch uh, disciple-making initiatives and what we hope becomes truly multiplicative. Um, you'll get that 2.5% who they're going to go with you because they know it's the right thing to do. They see the vision you're casting. They've been reading the same Bible you're reading, and they are, they've been feeling it. There's... You know, a holy discontent in them, just like there is in you. 
But then there are always going to be these people, you know, you get to the backside of that bell curve and you've got the late majority who may come on board at some point in time. Down the road, you've got the laggards who are going to fight you with everything they have for this change actually happening. And so um, so from my perspective, and this actually was part of through what you shared at one point in time, Curtis, um, if you know the, the levels, levels of churches that Exponential talks about, you know, if we go level three and above, level three is growing, but primarily through attraction. Level four starts to grow through reproduction. True viral multiplication doesn't happen until level five. Good level four churches that hopefully catalyze level five movement, I think is, is what I'd like to shoot for, is what I, I think I'm dedicating myself to, not believing that we would be maybe right at the heart of movement, but that we would have been faithful enough in having an open-handed posture to what true multiplication looks like, that multiplication would be catalyzed by what we're doing at the church level, that we would no longer be a barrier to it anyway. Is that? I think that is definitely a legitimate way to view it. So, yeah. Okay. Does that make sense to everybody? Just if I could make yes, one please comment. Do. Yep. One thing that... Um, I think would be in support of that thinking is, um, you know, when, when I define a simple church, I define it as um, a spiritual family with Christ in their midst as king, who love God, love others, and make disciples. So that's equivalent to like at the church that meets in so-and-so's home in scripture. Mm-hmm. Now, things that are specifically left out of that level of church definition would be things like buildings, mm-hmm. budgets, staff, programs, and there is nothing wrong with those, and God has used those things to do some great things in the kingdom. but. This interior part is simple, not always easy, but at least simple to multiply. That these things are very difficult to multiply. Yes. You can add them, but that, that would be supportive of what you're saying. It's difficult for um, a legacy or prevailing model church to be at the heart of movement in some senses because these aspects don't multiply easily, but they can support lots of multiplication of these. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that would be one way to look at yeah. what you just said. And one piece of good news is, is we're seeing this happen in a number of situations, number of settings in North America right now, where there are some legacy churches who've operated in primarily attractional framework for most of their history but have made the shift to truly catalyzing movement. I mean, pretty incredible, explosive movement that would formerly have been things that we would have only heard about in the global South for the most part. So um, when the question has been asked over and over, well, can this actually happen? We're actually starting to be able to point to some places and say, oh, it is happening, which is, uh, man, that's one of the things that just gives me chills when I start to think about it. Um, so, Curtis, let me ask you kind of about your, your personal practice. What, what are some, some maybe some tangible steps that you take that ensure that, that disciple-making remains a priority in your life and your ministry, that you keep the, 
understanding of the urgency alive for yourself. Yeah. Um, for aspects that are natural to me and the way I'm wired, I don't really have to be intentional. It just naturally happens. But there are definitely aspects that aren't natural. They're not in my area of gifting. And my um, primary practical step related to that would be calendaring. Mm. So, you know, like I literally, I am the farthest thing you can have from having the gift of evangelism. I definitely don't have that, but all of us are to share our faith. So I literally have to put on my calendar times, for me, I make it as part of a prayer walk. So I'll calendar times to prayer walk and make be intentional about sharing my faith, you know, on those, during those times. Um, so I, I'll calendar, um, you know, contact with people that I'm currently mentoring. That's something I definitely um, calendar. I'm intentional about keeping a coaching checklist for people that I'm currently mentoring. Mm. So it's a list of tools, skills, or concepts related to whatever function I'm, I'm mentoring them for and helps me track where are they in that model assist, mm -hmm. watch, leave, you know, process. So that would be a tool that I use, just a weekly accountability uh, meeting with my accountability partner to check up on all different aspects of uh, my spiritual life, including, you know, some of the disciple-making activities. So those would be some... And then just building into my daily routines, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, so I, I want you to hear that, that, you know, intentionality is directly connected to, to maintaining this understanding of the urgency. I've, I've seen that in my own life, kind of the ebb and flow. If I'm not being intentional, if I'm not scheduling, if I'm not calendaring these things, if I'm not engaging with those that I'm connected with on a regular basis, I can actually move back into complacency. And I think... For somebody like you, you say this, this kind of comes naturally. Uh, for many of us in the existing North American church, we have this real tendency to slip back into the old pattern. That's, uh, that's been a real struggle for me. Maybe, maybe some of you can identify with that. Uh, because we have this thing that became the pattern and the habit and the way of doing things, we're actually now trying to break a pattern, break a mold, and break a habit. And so we have to be incredibly intentional about scheduling the way that we engage about making sure that, you know, if we are prayer walking, those times are scheduled on our calendar. If we are engaging with particular disciples, that we're not just hoping this will happen, you know, we'll just bump into each other and then, and then we'll do it when that happens. We're actually scheduling this out. Uh, I, I think creating new rhythms and new habits is something that's going to be essential for many of us if we want to see that fire of the urgency continue to stay lit. I think for a lot of people... Um, something that a, a tool that I encourage them to use is uh, what I call a list of a hundred. So I ask them to make a list of a hundred people that they know yes. and that know them. So this would be friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, and then to indicate beside each name if they're a follower of Christ or if they're not or if you don't know. And then begin to think in terms of, okay, every interaction 
I have with this person, if they're already a follower of Christ, what can I do to help them grow as a follower, to help them grow as a disciple? If they, if I don't know, I need to have a conversation, a spiritual mm-hmm. conversation with them and just, you know, figure out where they're at. If they're not a follower of Christ, what can I begin to do to uh, deepen their spiritual hunger and awareness and, you know, things like that? Because um, for a lot of people, starting with people you already know is in some senses easier or feels easier as opposed to having to go out and interact with somebody that, you know, you Mm -hmm. don't know at all. And um, so for a lot of people, that can be a good first step. And so then, you know, in a sense, you can just start working your way through the list and saying, what would be a great next step next time I interact with this person? And then you begin to, you know, recognize those opportunities naturally if you start living like that. Yeah. So that level of intentionality to know who you're engaging with regularly. um, I think that's, that's fantastic. And one thing that I definitely took away, I'll give you another thing that I took away from the time we spent together uh, nearly two summers ago. Um, We were engaging. Curtis was leading a a group a little smaller than this group. And uh, at 10 2 something happened. Curtis's alarm went off and he stopped and he's looking at it and, I was wondering what's what's going on, and Curtis said, "Hey, I'm I'm going to lead us in prayer right now. We're going to pray the words of Luke 10 too." Well, that made such an impact on me that I I pray Luke 10 too every day during the week now. So at 10:02, my alarm will go off, um, and that was a practice of intentionality that I started to embrace. And let me tell you, um, and we we did this with our church. We had our whole church praying Luke 10, 2, and also praying Colossians 4, 3 through 6, and saying, okay, so every day at 10, 2, your alarm's going to go off, and you're going to pray Luke 10, 2, asking that God would send workers into the harvest field, because the harvest is plenty, the workers are few. That's an, I tell you, it's unbelievable the things that will come out of that. In fact, we had two families leave and go to places that we never would have imagined they would have go to, gone to because of that month we spent in prayer, praying that prayer. Um, also for us, you know, we pray Colossians 4, 3 through 6, which is the Apostle Paul saying, pray that God would open doors, that I would be able to communicate the gospel clearly, um, and then challenging us to make the most out of every opportunity. So in that, we're praying for others, that God would open doors for them, and that as we have opportunities, we'd make the most of them. And then we've had a few people, my, my alarm goes off at 424 every morning, um, to pray a prayer that I need, uh, that has really fueled my understanding of the urgency of the mission then it's praying first for boldness this is from acts 4 24 through 30 praying that god would make me bold because that's one of the things that man i struggle with boldness i mean that's just confession and the more i confess it the more god makes me bold actually so i struggle personally with boldness but then i also want to see god move in power and then at the end, what you see is that those early believers, they prayed for boldness again after they asked God to move in power. Um, and when we pray prayers like that over and over that are connected directly to the movement, to mission, um, it starts to change us. I mean, it is transformative in a deep way. So thank you um, for that faithfulness that day at 1002, uh, which which has worked to, to be revolutionizing me. And so 
I think there are a number of practices we can engage in, um, and probably so many practices you engage in that they don't even, they just, they're just normal, like you say at this point in time. But for us, um, they can be quite foreign, uh, at least initially. But the more we engage in these practices, the more we embrace and feel and believe the urgency of the mission um, as it relates to, uh, to our work in the urgency. Okay, we're coming up um, kind of on the close of our time, so I'm going to skip to this last question. Um, maybe what are a couple of steps that someone who's been convinced about the urgency of the mission, so they're convinced about the urgency of the mission, but they've not yet taken you know, the step to become a disciple maker. What, what are some steps that they could take or should take to begin this journey? Um, you know, one possibility is to seek training. Okay. So um, the, the Zoom A training is very accessible. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine anybody being so busy they couldn't make time to yes. figure out a way to work through that content um, some way. And um, if you you know, register as a user, you can request a coach as well, which would, you know, help with that. Um, as you mentioned, I, I do some live training events. So if that's something that interests you, mm -hmm. you know, we could talk about that. Um, there's a um, coalition of movement practitioners globally called 2414. Yep. Totally free and available. The um, URL for the website, if you want to kind of start looking into it, is 2414now.net. And um, so you could, you know, figure out somebody who's geographically, you know, near you um, that you could start to interact with, you know, ask questions of that, you know, would hopefully be mm -hmm. accessible to where you're located um then you know that list of a hundred things that i mentioned um i think is helpful for a lot of people just to help us realize in our daily communications and rhythms there are opportunities if we'll take them yes you know if we'll be intentional about them and so, I don't know, those would be a few thoughts. Yeah, I'll say training and coaching is, is invaluable. Um, it's one thing to desire this. Um, I, I had a burden and a holy discontent that had built in me. But there is also, and especially sometimes if you, um, I had engaged previously with, with guys who uh, we're not wildly familiar with the North American context. And so there's a, there's a gap and a barrier there. Um, Curtis is familiar with the North American context, although familiar with context in the global South as well. Um, but to engage with somebody like Curtis or maybe a Josh Howard or others who are familiar with our context is, is super beneficial. And give you just some things that you can start putting into practice right away. Um, and the intentional practice does start to change and transform. I mean, it absolutely does. So when we embrace these new, if you want to call them disciplines, practices, whatever you want to put on that, whatever label you want to put on that, that starts to bring transformation in you. So it takes the want and adds it to a doing, which actually brings more want and more transformation as you go. And so I think training is a really big thing. So I would say definitely um, 
take Curtis up on that and, and as well, you know, the potential for an on-site training. I know there are some, uh, you're looking for some things be, probably before you want to go and do an on-site training, but, uh, but there is the ability to maybe be in contact with Curtis and have him come do uh, a training for you. All right, I'm gonna give somebody a chance for one more quick question. And then as we close, I'm actually gonna ask if Curtis would lead us in, uh, in a Luke, in Luke 10-2 prayer since we're almost 10-02 right now. Can I just say something real yes. quick? One of the things that I've tried to engender in our church people is the greatest act of faith in eternity is to share the gospel. Because mm. if you believe Lazarus of the rich man, mm -hmm. that is the pinnacle. And when we send people across the world, we think missionaries are the greatest. Well, only because they're sharing the gospel with lost people. That is the greatest proof that your faith is you really believe hell and heaven are real mm. when you share the gospel. Yeah. It's good. It's a mindset shift yeah. that we all need to, to have. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right about that. Good. Curtis, I know last night you talked about the saturation of scripture within <clears throat> making disciples. And so I am curious because one of the, um, the ways we're using to make disciples right now is lots of scripture. But if we were doing that again four months and then bring some more people along, we're this is like an eight-month eight month journey through the New Testament, so we're not doing quite as much a week as what you mentioned last night. But we would be, um, even if we were asking of our disciples to do that, we would be probably reading 25 to 30 um, chapters of Scripture a week and, and try, like, keeping up in multiple places. How do you navigate that with disciples when you are in different, when you're bringing them on, like, every Okay, so the question is is about uh, the saturation of disciple making in movements and and how you're balancing the bringing on of different people all the time. How are you engaging if you're working through the mall cycle? Yep. So one thing is in that um, training cycle, generally for most applications, the model and assist is one on one. Whenever possible. The watch is done actually in groups. So is that the, the chat group structure? No, or just um, coaching, coaching interactions, okay. but with groups for a couple of reasons. Um, one is it gives the opportunity to for peer mentoring to enter in, which is good for their own growth and development, and they start learning about you know this person being strong in one thing, the other, and the other thing and so on and then also uh, often there are learning opportunities that one person is experiencing that maybe another person might not experience for quite a while and so mm -hmm. you're getting lots of learning opportunities dumped into one you know kind of bowl there and dealing with multiple people at a time and so that helps some with that um, there's a, a tool called the leadership cell, which is a temporary um, time, you know, time limited group that is focused on equipping people who then go out and start work. And so sometimes that sort of a tool, there are ways that you can use it to help um, sort of 
meet the, some of the challenges you were talking about. There's some applications of that. So there would be, you know, I would need to know mm -hmm. more details about what you're doing before I could comment on the specific applications, but those would be some things to be aware of. So it sounds like the answer is to some degree moving away from only one-on-one -on -one interaction to more group interaction to, to get the most out of the time. Yeah. Okay, excellent. All right, Curtis, if you lead us uh, in Luke 10-2 prayer together, and then uh, it will be dismissed. Lord, we definitely see in our world today uh, that the harvest is plentiful. Mm. Lord, um, there are more people hurting more deeply mm -hmm. than um, maybe than ever. And uh, Lord, it can be overwhelming to us yes. because it seems the laborers are indeed few, that there are not enough of us in those harvest fields. So we do ask that you would thrust out laborers into your harvest field, mm -hmm. whether it's from among those who already name the name of Christ and uh, merely need to be challenged and equipped, or Lord, whether it's from the fruit that you give mm -hmm. and those people are equipped and immediately become harvest laborers mm -hmm. for your kingdom. So Lord, we pray that from whatever source, there goes my phone, Deb, mm -hmm. if you can. That's my 1002 alarm, sorry. Uh, so, yeah. so Lord, um, we do pray that you would thrust out laborers so that the harvest mm -hmm. is not lost, Lord, that your name mm -hmm. might be lifted up and yes. glorified and made known yes. among all peoples. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. Next up, we've got more from Renew.org. We've got Paul Hugobar and Josh Howard. They're going to be talking more about disciple-making movements and church-planning movements in India. So you want to hit the subscribe button so that you know when I release that new episode. All right, y'all, enjoy the rest of your day, and I hope to catch you on the next one. See ya.